From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in Rational, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Alan Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are Game Maker for Unity Devs and Inspiration from Behavioral Economics. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Was a lot of words <laughs> in the topics. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, sometimes we do the the one or two word punchy ones, mm-hmm. and sometimes we really we we do a full sentence. Yeah, not so bad. They're both super interesting topics. Right, right, right. And we will get into them. Yes. Shortly. Yes. Um, but uh, we have a couple of pieces of news. First, Ellen, you found another giant tomato. Holy smokes! I don't understand. <laughs> Where are they getting these tomatoes? I mean, you know, uh, the miracles of science, I, I imagine. Guess right from the ooze, I guess. <laughs> like it's, I, I mean, so Dale tweeted out a picture of me holding the first giant tomato. Yes. And it's like a big beefsteak tomato. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with these tomatoes, go to Twitter. Um, and uh, it took me a week to eat it. So every day I'd have like a slice of tomato. I just love that as a unit of measurement. It is, right? <laughs> like that's how big this tomato was. I would have a slice of tomato on my sandwich. It would be as big as the bread. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, and it was so tasty. It was like such a good tomato. There's like nothing better than like a nice ripe <laughs> tomato. Anyway, okay. And so I eat a slice every day and it took me a week to eat it. And now I have another one. I'm so excited. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so that's... Piece one of big news. One. Other, we're a little late on this because the episode won't be out right away, but from where we're sitting, uh, it's Max's birthday tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, which Max. we just learned. Happy birthday, Max, our guest booker. Do we sing it? Do we sing the song? No. <laughs> Not on okay. the, the uh The, uh, the rights uh, issue around the song Happy Birthday have been cleared. Yes. yes. It is now in the public domain as uh, it should have been all along. Right. I don't want to hear it ever again. Okay, fine. <laughs> not fine. a good song. I mean, it's not, but you got to make it really awkward for people. So, but he's not listening right now. Well, right. he he'll, will eventually. He'll just turn it off. Yeah, that's a good point. And then everybody else will, and then they'll all turn it off. Yeah, okay. And then where will we be? All right, fine. So we'll just call up Max separately in a separate call and sing it. And sing it to him Tomorrow. directly then. Tomorrow. Yeah, that'll be, yeah. That'll all be good. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, the other piece I wanted to talk about at the top of the show, uh, uh, sad news, and this, again, will be a couple weeks old by the time you hear this, but um, from where we were sitting yesterday, Nichelle Nichols, who played uh, Uhura on Star Trek, uh, died at the age of 89. And I mentioned that, um, I mean, it was kind of, uh, she had fallen in in, uh, ill health in the recent years. Mm -hmm. She'd stopped convention appearances and that sort of thing. Um, So it wasn't a big shock to people, um, but it led to a huge outpouring of support, of course, when these things happen. But I wanted to mention it specifically because um, I, you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. People know that about me. But the thing about Nichelle Nichols that I think not enough people know is that when she got done shooting Star Trek um, in the 70s, she uh, helped uh, the um, uh, she helped NASA uh, recruit um, uh, women and minority astronauts. Mm. Uh, it was a an effort w- which. Um, I can't tell the whole story. It's really fascinating how it got started and how she got involved with it. First as a spokesperson, but then like really as a leader. Um, she formed a company to help facilitate the relationship and, and uh, do recruiting efforts. And I think history remembers her as a spokeswoman for this program. Yeah. But she had a lot more to do with it than that. And mm-hmm. essentially turned NASA. I grew up thinking NASA was this like group of like brave scientists yeah. from all walks of life. Like that's the picture of NASA to me. Mm-hmm. But the the popular notion of NASA from the Apollo era and is and and then still that that image exists is like hotshot test pilots. Ah yeah. And and that's because that's what it was initially. You know, it's this uh, space and aeronautics, right? Mm-hmm. And um Nichelle Nichols is really very much responsible for turning uh, that from this like extension of the military, this old boys club into what it became in the eighties with this, the shuttle program and through to today, how we still feel about NASA and how NASA is comprised uh, today as a, a place of much greater equality than would have otherwise been. Yeah. And uh, I've, you know, I've always said progress is not a function of time. The people do need to make progress for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And she is someone who I admire greatly for that reason specifically. And she, of course, she found her way to be able to do that because of her fame uh, as a you know a cast member of Star Trek. But she did something with it. I mean, as much as I love William Shatner, anybody could have played Kirk. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, uh, uh, she used that and did something like truly historically good for the world. And I think people should know that about her. And so that's the the what I want people to remember about her. But there's a great documentary 
that is all about it. It's called Woman in Motion. It came out just a year or so ago. Um, and you can watch it for free. Uh, it's on Peacock for free. You have to sign up for it, though. And it's also on Tubi, which is a, a, a minor streaming service. You can yeah. just watch it for free with no account. Ooh. And it's, uh, it's on Paramount Plus if you have a membership there as well or you do a free trial. So there's a bunch of ways for you to watch this at no cost to you. And I think everybody should watch it. Um, I mean, put down this podcast and go watch it. That's how, that's how it's a really good documentary as yeah. well as being a, a fantastic story. Um, my dad has watched this. He, my, my dad really likes, I mean, he's this Trekkie. Yeah. And he also really likes NASA. Yeah. Um, I haven't talked to, um, my parents really about, um, Michelle Nichols, you know, his, her passing. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm curious. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really fresh from where we're sitting. It just happened. Right, right, right. So I don't know how they're feeling about it now. Um, but my dad really likes documentaries too. So like, mm -hmm. I might like this. I'll, I'll let them know about that. Yeah, it's it's excellent. It's an excellent watch, and it really is says something that people need to hear. So um, we'll put the links for that in the show notes, or you can just Google it. You'll find it. Woman in Motion is the name of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going with this. <laughs> I'm Stephen. You should keep that in. Stephen, you do have a topic today, right? I do. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> right. Okay. So my topic is. Game Maker for Unity Devs. Yeah. And listeners are like, what? This is Steven's topic? This isn't Mark's topic where he's, you know, learning about things because he likes learning about things and he's knowledgeable about stuff. And Steven, you know, doesn't like learning about <laughs> new engines. Yeah, it is established lore. It is established lore. <laughs> that Steven is a Unity developer through and through it's and probably, will never learn anything else. It's probably in my nice games club bio. <laughs> Only works in Unity. <laughs> um, so I've been working in Game Maker for work. Gasp. And, yeah. Well, I'll like, okay, so this is a big deal for actually a number of reasons. One is like for a long time at my previous job, I didn't want to learn any new engines. I think part of it was just because of the environment that I was in. Um, it wasn't necessary, but I also didn't feel motivated to do it. Um, in this environment, I feel more motivated to do it. We're scrappier. Um, <laughs> so that's part of it. Um, but I, I just feel a lot, I feel more supported here um, in, mm -hmm. in terms of this stuff, even though I'm the only programmer. So it's kind of weird. They're all just like, whenever I do anything, at all. <laughs> They're so appreciative. <laughs> it makes me feel really good. Yeah. Um, Don't um, get used to it. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Eventually, that won't be the case. But right now, I'm basically the magician. Um, so, yeah. I, so, I've been working in, in Game Maker, and I've been, enjoy been enjoying it quite yeah. a bit. It's been surprising. Well, real quick, before you yes. get in for the details. So, the story of this is that your, your company was, uh, uh, they wanted to make some prototypes for different projects. Right. And, and, um, and you picked game maker as the engine for to try out um, or was there their their discussion at the company about trying this or that or was it where did it where did the idea come right, from right, this direction so we wanted to switch a little bit out of unity just because um when we were working on this, the previous prototype we were working on um people were having difficulties getting into unity and mm -hmm. i ended up ended up doing a lot of like support work in order to get people on board with it right artists um, and designers who use it not as a development tool necessarily but as like to to work with the design uh, um, variables or yes. to uh, integrate assets. Right. right, right, right. And so, like, I had to build tools to help them do those things more easily. Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up being, like, I think it ended up being a difficult process, partly because I'm not very good at documentation. Um, but also <laughs> That's another piece of Nice Games Club lore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm working on that, too. Um, but partly just because Unity just has a lot of things um, that aren't necessarily necessary for all of your projects at all times. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to make, uh, we wanted to, when we were working on other newer prototypes, we wanted to try to use engines that were faster for other people to get into. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I've only done, I've only done work in unity really, but I, I tried a few different engines, uh, a couple of different engines before I came to game maker. Um, I tried construct three, mm -hmm. which is like a browser based engine. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. have you used it before? Yeah, I tried it out Okay. and then I got distracted by Godot. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, it has like visual scripting too. It has visual yeah. scripting. I yeah. did not like it very much at all. A Hypnospace Outlaw was made in Construct 2. Mm -hmm. And the way Mike, who I work with on the on the sequel, describes yeah. it to me is like um very helpful like useful to get going, but then the more complicated your project is, the harder it becomes to work. Absolutely. With. That absolutely makes sense with what I was trying to do. Because I was yeah. trying to like program and yeah. and I mean you can do it, but it's just not you don't type code you know right right yeah. the, the in, 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 principles are the same yeah the principles are the same but be, because it works differently i had a hard time even approaching it mm -hmm. um it works so differently um ironically though i went to game maker <laughs> 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 um game maker allows you to at least code actual lines of code yeah 
Um, but it also has like a visual coding language that is available um, right from jump. Um, oh, I didn't know that about it actually. Yes, um, I've heard it's not very good though. Oh, okay. <laughs> when we we at work we did a, a game jam, and I was uh, I did music and and sound. Um, cool. Instead of programming. Um, which wait, is wait, fun. pause. What? Can we play your game jam game? Uh, yeah, I, I'll see if I can get a link, and I'll probably. Well, I don't know that I don't know that I should share it because I don't think people well, felt comfortable. Yeah. But I'll let y'all play. Yeah, wait. Okay. Also, pause. Yes. Could we put some of your music? That's definitely doable in the <laughs> in the show right now. Uh, sure. Whoever's editing it. Yes. Play it now. I hope it's me. <laughs> Let's see. That sounded great. <laughs> wow, Steven, you did that. Thanks. <laughs> they haven't heard it yet. They're being nice. <laughs> um, um, I so yeah, I did that. Um, and one of the one of the artists did programming in the visual coding language of game making, mm-hmm. and he had a hard time with it. But I think part of it was he's not a developer or programmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, I think also part of it was just like I it, it from what I could see, it looked difficult to use. Yeah. Um, could is it something? Um, this is a bit of a side tangent now, sure. but is it? I imagine a system like that that even if it's not great, yeah, it, you could get started and then you could you could translate that later on in the future life of the project, yes, to eventually wean your way off of that system. Yeah, yeah, you totally can. Um, okay. I think cool. yeah, that alone is a huge benefit, even right. if that system is terrible. Yeah, yeah, I think you can convert any scripting or visual scripting into regular co- lines of code. And then you can adjust those lines. Oh, there's like a button you press. And yeah, it but turns you, it into... you can't convert it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's um, cool. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is nice. I, I like I, I didn't, I just right out of the gate was like, I'm just going to code stuff because that's what I'm used to. Yeah. So I didn't really try that. But um, I would I would love to hear if folks have tried that and uh, it be successful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at, the end, at the end of the day, I want to talk about Unity devs jumping into Game Maker the first time because mm-hmm. there's a lot of major differences obviously it's not unity um and difference I- one <laughs> right not, not unity. the names are different check <laughs> i'm tracking i'm following you okay yeah. cool 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 um yeah so i want to like okay so the first one of the first things that i had a uh a, a major difficulty with 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 game maker is it uses a different programming language it doesn't use c sharp mm-hmm. it uses its own proprietary language called uh game maker was it game maker script Game Maker language, that's what it is. Game Maker language, GML. That's very. It's yeah. a very like just Descriptive. straight to the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Name, yeah. It yeah. <laughs> it's like based off of C and JavaScript, which mm-hmm. is weird. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> Best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I would call it that, but it, I mean, it, it, you know, it can code in it. Right, Frankly, right. as long as you can code stuff, it doesn't. Is it, it actually doesn't. a superset of some other language or? Is it? Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of times, like um, Godot script, yeah. I think is just Python or something underneath the hood. I, I might be getting that wrong, but I think isn't that what happens? A lot of these things, like Unity script, mm-hmm. was it right. was it was a name for a language that uh, you used in Unity for a long time till they moved to C sharp, yeah. and that was just a superset of JavaScript. Right. It's yeah. not a. I don't think it's a superset. I think they made their own language, and it has combinations wow. of. The C and JavaScript stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, one of the big one of the big differences um, that I had an issue with is that the code does not allow you to define what type your variable is going to be. So you know, like if you're in Unity, you're like, I'm going to make a private string called text, and it holds all of the text. I don't know. Um, um, in this one, you got to just make you just make a variable called text, and then you set it equal to something. Yeah. And you set it equal to a string. 
Um, and I just feel that so, feels so uncomfortable. To me. What you're talking about is a dynamically typed language. Yeah. Yes. And what that also means is that you can put anything in there when you define it. But the advantage I've heard, I don't know that this is, I, mean, I don't believe it, <laughs> uh -huh. but the, the, what you can also then do is that put anything else in it later. So you can actually oh. change the type Whoa. because it's a dynamic, it, the type is, is determined. I mean, basically a piece of code asks for it yeah. and if it can't use it, it breaks. Mm -hmm. But if it can use it, great. Yeah. So at no point does it need to be written down what it is, I right? See. And so, but a statically typed uh, uh, language, variables have types and that's what uh, you're used to. Yes. That's what I prefer. Yeah. But a lot of people um, who begin their programming journey, a lot of them do start with JavaScript right. because web development is very accessible. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a miracle that it is. <laughs> but um, a lot of people do start with um, dynamically typed languages mm -hmm. that, that are not, that don't have that. And so it is actually, there's a philosophical difference. I think generally the general consensus is that uh, statically typed languages are both e better for, to use as you build complicated programs, mm -hmm. but also easier to learn. Yeah, um, it's sort of a weird irony that 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 it's more restrictive, and that's good. There's a um, I'll hand the topic back to you in a second. Steve. Yeah, that's fine. But there's a, <laughs> there's a language called Rust, which uh, is a, a yeah. low level language that is essentially uh, um, like C or C plus plus. Those are low level languages, very yeah. close to the the hardware. Yeah, um, a Rust is of a similar type, and um, the Ru Rust compiler. It, the, the, this static ty uh, typing is all checked by the compiler when you're writing your code. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rust is a language that, whose philosophy is that it makes it very hard for you to make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and I have not written anything in Rust, but I've done a little bit of research on it because I'm sort of curious. Yeah. Um, and I'm really impressed because it's modern. It essentially takes the idea of like, yeah, if you make something the wrong type or you feed it to a wrong language, the compiler will complain to you. Mm -hmm. Rust goes way past that. And we'll just will like prevent all sorts of other kinds of mistakes that even those of us who use C Sharp or Java or other uh, high level uh, statically typed languages are used to. Hmm. Um, so it is interesting that this is a dynamically typed language. Um, yeah. And so you do have to kind of set your own guardrails a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's been a bit, it's been a big of an adjustment and it feels like icky every time I do it. <laughs> like I'm just, just creating this box. Yeah. This box just holds random things and I give it random stuff yeah. and it just feels wrong. Um, but like, <laughs> I just want to categorize it. Yeah. This is the string box. <laughs> in uh, C sharp, do you ever inside of like a local function? Do you ever just do var? Yeah, I got oh in C sharp. No, yeah. I don't do it in C sharp, but I, I do it a lot in this language. Yeah, <laughs> so that that what make some people might be saying, hey, I've done dynamically typed uh, variables in C sharp, mm -hmm. but what those actually are, those are inferred types. Yeah, so you don't define them when you write it. But then when the program runs, the compiler's like, oh, this is obviously a string. Yeah. Therefore, it's a string. And then you can't change it. Right. Uh, but it, when you write the language, you don't have to define it when you write it. Yeah. But it does have to be something. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But in this case, you don't have to write it and the compiler doesn't care. Yeah. I don't know if this is the case in C Sharp, but at least in, in, in GameMaker, when you use var, you're declaring that this variable is only used temporarily for like this function or uh, loop in the thing or whatever it's scoped to that wherever it is you, yes yeah um so i've been using it for that purpose and it, it's kind of nice when you use var it turns the color of the the, um, the variable to yellow <laughs> so i know it's <laughs> i know i'm not going to use that in in yeah. later things um so yeah that's that's been an adjustment it's been really weird mm -hmm. um game maker uses these things called rooms um that contain instances of objects um, which actually is very similar to how Unity works um, with their scenes mm -hmm. and their prefabs. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, but but like the way that the instances work are like every I, as far as I understand it, every object in your room needs to be an instance of an object. So uh, they basically you have to make prefabs for literally everything that goes into your room. Right. There's no there's no generic game object. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah, you can't just make all, like a one off kind of thing. You got to make an object for it. Yeah. As far as I understand it, if, if that's not the case, please let me know because I would like to <laughs> not have to have all these different options. Well, what you're describing, the way Unity works, is pretty unique to Unity. Yeah. Um, most other frameworks don't have these generic containers. Yeah. That you, uh, um, it's an entity component model is if for the mm. computer science people in the audience, um, although it's not technically that. I'm not going to explain. <laughs> sure. That's a different episode, right? But it, but so a prefab in Unity is a collection of components put on an entity, right? 
that that is a game object and and but we sort of treat it that's why everything you make generally has like a um like a controller ob thing that's the main script for yeah. that thing yep that idea of what of an instance of something that has to be created the, that main script is the is the thing yeah right it, it serves yep. the function of a script an a, an object in a programming sense but also it serves as a, a an instance of a quote-unquote game object yeah um, that is a much more natural way. That's that would when I I moved from other systems to Unity, mm -hmm. and I had the hardest time with it. So it's really right. interesting that that being something you're so familiar with, and moving away from it into what was a more a more common framework, mm -hmm. uh, it, more common in terms of all the types of frameworks. But Unity is so well uh, known and right. used yeah. that it's it is kind of the most common way to do it now. I, yeah. I added entity component models as a topic for the future. Oh. <laughs> undo, undo. <laughs> I added LOL after it, so yeah, I'll yeah. leave it in there for some time in cool, the future. Cool. Um, it is, it's important to know the difference between an instance of an object and an object itself because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if you make... So, for instance, in the code, if you make <laughs> this... What? <laughs> for instance. Uh. <laughs> nice. Um, if you uh, make a uh, an object... Like I don't know, text object, and you want to move you want to move the text object up um, a few pixels or whatever. You say y plus five, so it goes up once. Um, you will move all of the text objects in that room up five if you do that way. Mm -hmm. um, so what you want to do is you want to take a specific instance. Every instance has its own ID mm -hmm. that's associated with it. It's instance ID, um, and you want to say um, instance ID dot y plus five. Um, another way to do it is there's this thing called with, with, um, W I T H. <laughs> it's hard to say it correctly. You know? Yeah. Um, um, where you can you know specify what you're looking for, um, more more specifically, and then pretend like that is the the object that you want to um, have move up. Um, so yeah, it's just important to keep that that kind of stuff in mind because uh, it, it it can affect a lot of things. Oh, that's like an extra layer of abstraction I wouldn't have guessed. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, objects have events on them. They're all, like all of the objects have a ton of events on them um, that trigger when certain things happen. So, like for instance, if you want to uh, create when when this thing creates when you create this thing, uh, your character moves forward. I don't know. I'm not coding your game. Y'all figure that out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they have a bunch of events that'll trigger. Um, so like a create function or there's this thing called step, which is basically just like an update. Um, the update function in Unity. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the code in GameMaker is based around these events. It's really strange to me. Um, they, you have regular scripts, but you don't like attach the, the scripts to your game objects like you would in Unity. You just call the functions on the script. Um, I think that's probably more common in a lot of different engines. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm not familiar with. So, that. is an event something that you then attach your own methods to, or is yeah. it like a Unity callback, like a update or on enable or whatever, where you actually define it in your? Code? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You define it in your code. Okay, so, so it's like a callback, yeah. sort of like how Unity's uh, mono behavior callback. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, and that was kind of that one. I, I, I kind of got a handle on. So, like, there are some um, events like on mouse click. Um, you know, if you click the thing, th this will happen. Um, stuff like that. You can use those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and it, and that's kind of useful because that feels a little more. It feels intuitive, but like just due to the fact that a lot of the the the, the scripting is based around these events is a bit of an adjustment. Um, and there's a lot of events, um, mm -hmm. so it's very helpful to know what all they do. Um, Game Maker has pretty good documentation. Um, I'd say better than Unity's. I think I think Unity just has a lot of features. Um, and half some of them are half finished, and some of them are yeah. half documented or half documented. Um, so like uh, Game Maker, I feel like has done a better job of of detailing what all of these things do, mm -hmm. which has been very helpful for me while I'm learning it out. Um, another thing that Game Maker does um, is there's this there's if there's events for drawing things on the screen. Um, you can use sprite, and you can use a regular sprite and attach that to your object um, or instance. Um, but if you don't have a sprite, you can use these draw events to like draw generic shapes like rectangles or circles. Oh, neat. Um, yeah, it is pretty nice. Um, but you also need to use draw events to create text unless you grab a plugin or something for it. Mm -hmm. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> so, so that's like a, a feature missing from Game Maker, There's, essentially. Yeah, actually, the whole idea of UI 
is missing from Game Maker. You huh. have to create your own UI objects or find the plugin that, that does it for hmm. you. Um, a lot, of, actually, a lot of the bulk of my work um, has been creating UI things that are just default in Unity. Um, partly so I can learn how Game Maker works better, um, but also just because like we might need to use these things in the future. So like I had to make like a text input um, object or or a scrolling bar object. Or or a slider object, things like that, mm-hmm. um, that just come standard in Unity, um, and I know how to manipulate those because I've been using them so long. Um, those are not standard in Game Maker, so like I figured out how to do that kind of stuff, um, and then I did it, um, and it was kind of fun to do actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like those kinds of things, you'll have to you'll have to figure out on your own, um, or find plugins and stuff uh, to do it. I, I, it's not like ridiculously difficult once you figure out how to do one of them. You can kind of figure out how to do the rest. Yeah, um, but it takes some time. Um, and it's, it's kind of wild to me that it doesn't have like some kind of generic UI thing. Yeah. Um, compared to unity, which has three and a quarter. (laughs) If you add them all together, it's a bit that many. Yeah. None of them individually are one, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Different versions. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's part of the thing, right? It's like game maker is a little bit more specialized. It's built more towards 2d development. You can do some, some, a little bit of 3D things, but it's really built for 2D. Yeah. Um, and so, like, because it's more specialized, I'm not as it, it it because it doesn't have as many features. I don't have to work around like new a bunch of things that aren't necessary for the game. But I don't have as many features as I'm used to. Um. So, like, I mean, commonly what I'll do in Unity is I'll be like, oh, I want I want to get this thing, and I've never done this thing before. What functions does Unity have that will support this thing that I've done? Uh, oh, it's got this, this, and this. This doesn't quite work for what I need. Well, I can update it or make some functionality that's kind of like this to make it to make it suit my purposes and such. Mm-hmm. Um, Game Maker is more like um, I know what I need to do. Um, Game Maker doesn't have an innate way to support this. I have to build it from scratch or look up a tutorial or something on how to do it. Um, and so it takes like more time to jump in out of the gate like doing things. Um, and the prototype that I'm working on, like specifically, uses like UI a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize that Game Maker didn't use. Mm, UI. Oh no! <laughs> didn't have UI functionality yeah. when I started. Wah, wah. Um, but I, I, I'm working through it, and, um, and you know, I've been learning through that. So it's 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 just been yeah, it's just been a bit of an adjustment to do that stuff. It's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, you are very brave. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm proud of you. Oh, appreciate it. Also, I'm curiously like, so. What is the benefit for your team? Like, what, why, why delve into it now? Um, the main reason why we wanted to delve into it was that it is supposed to be more approachable for other people Got who it. aren't familiar with it, with, right. with Unity. Because, like, like, Unity has so much stuff, and it is kind of code-heavy if you mm-hmm. haven't built the tools to not make it code-heavy. Right. Um, you also have to learn, like, the Unity way of, yes. like, so when you add a a bitmap to a Unity project, what you're actually doing is importing an asset and then it generates the meta file and then the asset is then compiled. Like there's actually a lot that happens that Unity doesn't explicitly tell you is happening right. in an effort to make it easier to use. But what that means is that it becomes kind of harder to understand what's happening yeah. when you do things. You're like, I moved it from this folder to this folder. Why did everything break? Mm. Um, you know, I got I changed the path and everything, whatever. But like, it seems like this is just more like a, there are folders for assets and they go there. Yeah, there's a lot of that, a lot of that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, there's a better like animation, uh, innate animation tool for in Game Maker than there is in mm-hmm. Unity, I think. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't do a lot of animation <laughs> stuff, and like you know, our our future club is like almost entirely animators, so they would know better than me. Um, but like, I think it's better. I think that has better tools for that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and and um, the the designer um who's working on the game has a little bit of experience in Game Maker. Um, and he had a little bit of experience in Unity, but I think that he had a lot of experience using tools that other people made in Unity. Um, right, right. Whereas, like a game maker, he has more understanding on how game maker works. Right. So the other people working on it, they can just open up the game maker editor, and they very rarely need to worry about adding functionality with a component via script. Uh, it's easier for them to do that where they need if they need to do it. Okay, okay. Um, and they've needed to do it, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. Um, yeah. uh, I think the last thing I really want to bring up, um, with respect to game maker, um, is that it doesn't have a debug.log which I'm very, 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 very 
Very <laughs> accustomed to using. <laughs> it uses it uses the show debug message. Actually, a lot of the the the, um, the way that uh, the variables and functions are typed, I don't like because they use like they separate them with. Um, What's the the under? Ooh, bar. snake case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't snake like case it. is only good with all caps. I think mm. it's the only time I like it. They're not using all caps. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm doing a lot of web development this past right. week or so. Yeah, and there's, there's tons of snake case in there. Oh. And like lots, very different from how I'm used to. Lots of hyphens too. Like, yeah, yeah. Ooh, it makes yeah. me nothing wrong with it. It's just I'm not. Yeah, used it to works. It. Yeah, basically that. It's just a different format. And I find myself like switching between what I'm used to and what this yeah. what Game Maker does. And it's it doesn't look good. It's not. Well, do you remember well. when we were working on Widget Satchel? All all my methods were uh, camel case. Yeah. Uh, with the lowercase at the start because I was used to that. Is methods and variables are both objects. They should both be typed the same way. Right. C sharp is like the only language of it in its family that doesn't do that. Mm. But it's the one everybody in game know. Yeah. Game development knows. Right. It took me forever to finally just decide. Okay, fine. I will just <laughs> do it the C. But you remember that? Like, yeah, I yeah. do remember that. Yeah. Uh good times. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any rate, um, the the show. Be- debug message um, function that they have you know it'll say you type you type in the thing or whatever it'll say test or what have you um but it you can't like click it and go to the line of code where the 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 debug was printed um you have to just know it (laughs) where it was so is that i mean do you know if that that method is a language feature or a feature of game maker um, Considering the language was made for Game Maker, it's kind of a fuzzier definition. Yeah, but like I, debug.log, for example, is yeah. part of the Unity Engine API. Oh, it's not right. a C sharp method. Mm-hmm. There are ways to print to console in C sharp that's built into the language. Unity doesn't use any of them. Yeah, okay. right, it uses its own. I see. And so I'm curious. That's what why you get that extra functionality. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess not. I don't know for sure. But yeah. I, I, I guess not because it just yeah, it just shows up on the console just what you typed in. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah. Um, Could just be like a lot of things. It's it's just a not as a more robustly developed part of the engine, right? It's a yeah. game maker just in all ways you've described. It just seems like a smaller tool. Yeah. Right. And this is one example. Yes. Um, and I've had a harder time like debugging uh, errors and stuff that I get. Uh, actually, that's another thing. Game maker like is really, is probably better for this than unity. Like if you get an error in unity, if everything else functions, you can just keep playing the game. If game maker, if there's one error, it's like, nah, you're done. Can't play this game anymore. <laughs> oh, round of applause for that! I love it. That's that is the way to do it. I don't. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> it's probably better, but I don't like it. <laughs> um, um, and so when that happens, um, and the game just comes to a complete halt, I have to you know figure out what the problem is. I'll use this show debug menu thing to try to figure out where the it where it's going, where it's, what code is executing, and um, it's not always clear, um, you know where that is and how 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 it's appearing in the code. Um, so like I haven't found a good way to like yeah. debug my code yet. Sounds like you're going to need to learn breakpoint debugging. There's, yeah, there's probably, right, because in Unity, it's not very good. But yeah, in Game but, Maker, it's better probably. Well, it, well, in Unity, yeah, it's, it's hard to set up, but also uh, debug.log lets you get away without using it. Yes. I mean, you know, you could ship a triple A you know scale game mm. without setting up a proper debugger yeah. in unity because of because of the functionality of the editor right but it sounds like the, that functionality doesn't really exist in game makers so you kind of have to do it yeah the sort of yeah. traditional uh, breakpoint way yeah i'll probably have to look at how to do that better then because that's probably the way to go mm-hmm. i i mean it's not like i haven't done it before in unity but like i don't like doing it in unity because it's not great uh, but it might be better in, in game maker yeah i do keep accidentally clicking the little debug mode because it's right next to the play button I'm trying to test stuff. I should probably just lean into that. <laughs> You're sort of, you'll naturally figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think those are a lot of the major things that I've noticed um, that are different between, you know, Unity and Game Maker. I don't know. I hope that this has helped listeners who are interested in um, pursuing other engines, trying them out. Um, well, I got some questions for you. Oh, yes, yes. Um, first, how is the, ex- like, how is the editor as a piece of uh, like software, like the usability. Oh, sure. Like things are positioned in the right way. Can you move, can you resize panels? Like how does it feel as a piece of software to use? Yeah, um, it feels it feels fine. Uh, yeah, whenever you like double click to open up an object or something, it, it there's like a workspace tab. There's like a bunch of different tabs for your rooms and this work in your workspaces. Mm-hmm. Um, if you double click an object, it'll create a, it'll open up that object in one of your workspaces. And then you can see like the variables of that, uh, that object or the events that are on that object and things like that. Uh, oh, I didn't talk about inheritance for for objects. Um, that's another thing that's nice is that like you can create objects 
you can create children of those objects and those children will inherit the events that end variables that the, uh, the parent object yeah. has, which is really cool. Right, which you, you're familiar with in terms of as a language feature of C Sharp, but Unity is with its entity component model, mm -hmm. it wouldn't prefer you not do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it, it's uh, it, that's been a really cool thing to do is like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'll create like a generic thing and then you can make like a generic enemy and then add different sprites and different functionality depending on how these different enemies are supposed to yeah. work. Mm -hmm. It changes your design thinking. It a does. Lot. Mm. Um, like, you know, I've gone on to you for years about object-oriented programming yeah. as, a, as a philosophy and you're just like, whatever, man. Yeah. But like you get it now, right? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know that I get it. <laughs> well, that's a big part of it is, okay. is, the, is the sort of chain of inheritance. Yeah. Like, you, you have in fact used inheritance in in a language right but unity as a framework doesn't leverage it the way other frameworks do sure um to, so so it doesn't seem it just seems like oh yeah it's a thing you can do yeah but it's it becomes like a like i mean now there are prefab variants mm -hmm. in unity right and that's essentially the same idea yes just definitely. gone about in a different way yeah but i mean imagine that and that that has changed a lot of people's design thinking mm -hmm. having access to that in unity now that's true. but that's just something that's pretty basic to a lot of other frameworks yeah um and it really yeah it makes things like easier to manage easier to keep in your head right um and to really plan out and design yeah, so that's been helpful. Um, back to your original question, yeah. though. Uh, I think that it like has been pretty nice to work every or nice like the workspaces have been nice. Um, it's easy to understand. One thing that's kind of hard is that like uh, um, if you have too many ob objects open, um, it's kind of hard to navigate where all your which object is what. Uh. Um, and so that's been kind of an adjustment. Um, but I think it's pretty easy if you only have a couple objects and you just like I've been getting better at managing what objects I need at any given moment and closing objects I don't need. Um, and I'm pretty good at that anyways. I generally don't have a lot of tabs open in my <laughs> browser. <laughs> um, uh, so that has been, um, so I've been doing that and that's been easier. And then like, you, you know, you just look at the, the specific um, objects you need and yeah. use those events and such. Um, okay, my last question, last question is you mentioned uh, the, the sort of lack of UI framework. Yes. But you talked about plugins. Right. How is the third party ecosystem for plugins and libraries. Sure. And how does that work? Um, I haven't experimented with plugins very much, but from what I can tell, you it, it works kind of similarly to how, well, it's probably not as robust as Unity's is, mm -hmm. but like you just, there's no like asset store. You just have to find plugins in the ether web. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's not really a marketplace. It's just, it's a lot of shared code. Yeah, the ones that I found have just been like off github or something yeah um and yeah you just download them you drag them into your project and then game maker will be like oh this is a new thing this is a new plugin you want to import what do you want to import specifically from the plugin then you pick what you want to import and you do the importing um so in that way it is kind of similar to unity uh but yeah i i think there are game maker is pretty popular and it's been you know used in a lot of um uh big games mm -hmm. um so i think there are a lot of support for different plugins and stuff but it's just not as it's not as there's not a specific ecosystem to look for these kinds of things like there right. is in so you just have to find it um but like you know we're programmers our google foo is strong so <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be able to manage i think that's great um but yeah yeah check out game maker i mm -hmm. would recommend giving it a try mm -hmm. um it's fun okay one uh, bonus question oh bonus question what language are you going to learn next <sighs> I'm not answering that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Shut down. <laughs> He's learning, folks. <laughs> not now, Mark. <laughs> so we record the podcast in a room called The Clubhouse, yes. which we have deemed such. And it is in, in a little room inside a larger room. Uh, called Novo Robot, which is uh, the co-working space that I run here in Minneapolis. And it is a place for working on your games and also recording your podcast. And that's what I want to talk about here in the middle of the show is if that's something that you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, as the show has gotten older, a much smaller portion of our audience is local to Minneapolis. But if you're one of our local listeners, if you've been a longtime listener and you need a desk or you need a space to record audio, either for voiceover or for your own podcast, um, let me know, I guess. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> this is not a very developed pitch. Um, right. But um, I've recently relaunched uh, the website for Noble Robot, noblerobot.com. You can find out about all the stuff that I do, the games that I've helped work on uh, or that I've developed, some of, of, of which I've had my nice uh, co-hosts uh, with me on. Um, and also you can learn about st- uh, games that uh, Noble Robot has published. Um, a couple of new ones are coming soon to that, so stay tuned. And then you can learn all about the office space here and how you can engage with it if it's something that interests you. So that's kind of my whole pitch, guys, I guess. But I think you listeners will probably hear a little bit more about it as um, I, you know, get put more energy into it. Yes. There's a fridge. There is a fridge. There's a big TV. Right. So your giant tomatoes can stay for a little while. <laughs> if I don't snap them up, you're welcome to find them at lunch. That's true. You That's can right. hang out with your nice host. That's true. Ellen and Stephen both have desks here and uh, work uh, out of the office from time to time. And, you know, the other thing that's cool about having a space like this, especially, I mean, the pandemic's not over, but coming out of a pandemic where a lot of more people have more flexible work schedules yeah. and they can work from home, you don't always want to work at home. Right. And uh, maybe you don't feel super comfortable like going out to random coffee shops yet um the office a, a co-working space is a sort of a, a middle ground for that and that's kind of what has been uh, pitching it as but also we watch star trek together every week yes and you can be part of the community here at noble robot there's also so many food places near here oh man so if, if you were a person interested generally in lunch yeah <laughs> this Just, is the place it, for you it's tick amazing. it's there you got it yeah. so much so much for lunch and sometimes i bring in one of my two dogs one That's at a true. time I have not yet tried bringing occasional canine companionship also yep. available at Noble Robot uh, all that information is going to be on the website noblerobot.com as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed when I was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so I want to ask you guys some questions. Oh, here we go. That's that's what I'm like question answering hat. That's when you know it's an Ellen topic is when we get questions. Yep. Yep. Okay. Which which place charges more for coffee? Starbucks or Dunkin'? Which say that again? Which which coffee place charges more for coffee? Charges more for coffee. Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Or I think it's just Dunkin' now, which yeah. is weird. Uh, Starbucks? 
Yeah. So I don't know. I know that they're competitors on the East Coast. Here in the Midwest, we don't have a lot of Dunkins. We don't so. have many. I'm, just I'm trying to preempt this topic a little bit and try to, I'm like, I'm always trying to think of everything as a puzzle, Ellen. So uh-huh. I'm trying to think what the puzzle is here. Is it that because Starbucks is a coffee place famous for expensive coffee, that I'm inclined to think that that's that, even though Dunkin' is essentially a similar competitor in the market, I'm guessing they cost about the same. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure this this article that I looked it up is probably not accurate anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the cost of the coffee isn't precisely the important thing. Starbucks does cost a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, One point for Steven. Yes. Good job, Steven. It's Yay. not a contest. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Don't take this for from Steven, him. It's a contest. <laughs> right. For Mark, it's just a it's a puzzle. puzzle. Yeah. Um, Everybody wins. For me, it's a topic. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good I mean sorry to derail the show but that's a really good just thesis statement for the program yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay alright all so right. this thing you were talking about whatever right alright so this is the idea of this um, this idea of anchoring yeah which is a concept from behavioral economics mm-hmm. okay. um, and so anchoring is this idea that like the 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 ways you can break an anchor and like what your what your expectations are set by. So like the price of gas might be another one. Like depending on where you live, you might consider, well, right now, like gas is expensive everywhere, but what does expensive mean, right? Yeah. Like you take, you know, the cost of gas in, you know, the cities in Minnesota. What is it right now? Like $5? It's ridiculous. But we think it's ridiculous because that's what because of our anchoring. Our yeah. anchoring is from like a couple of years ago when we're not right. paying five dollars. Or the older we are, the the more we anchor to. Like when I was a teen, I got my license. Yeah. Expensive gas was over a dollar. Right. Right. And that's the and it hovered around a lot. Yeah. And so like I think about I think about that, but like that's such an outdated, useless information now. Right. Yeah. Right. It's right. it's been a long, long. Right. Long, long <laughs> right. time since then, Mark. Meanwhile, gas is like US $9 or something in Europe. Right. And that's not even that unusual right, exactly. a, an amount. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So like you talk to your like, talk to your friends in the UK or in Europe and you're like, yeah, we're paying this much for gas. Oh my gosh, it's so terrible. And they're like, do the math and math. That's not crazy. We've been doing that for years. Like, right, right. Come on. So anchoring is the idea that um, what, what you consider to be a rational price mm-hmm. is dependent on the anchors that are in, uh, in play. And that's an example of a concept from behavioral economics. And so just to give you a little bit of background, like behavioral economics came from um, long ago, and I'm not an expert in this. It's just a thing that's really interesting. And I want to hit the last 10 minutes of the episode to talk a little bit about it and to get other people interested in it as well. But basically, like, you know, the idea of traditional economics is that people are rational actors. Yeah. And what was happening with these um, with the models around traditional economics, and this was decades ago, um, was that the models just weren't accurately predicting human behavior yeah, yeah. with the data. So they were like, well, why why isn't this, why aren't these this group of people acting the way that the models say they should be? Because the models presume rational acting and the people aren't behaving that way, but they're not behaving the way that our models say in a consistent way, right? right? Which conveys some idea that there is some sort of rationality there. It was just rationality that wasn't accounted for in the model. Right, the, the axis of rational is uh, uh, profitable versus unprofitable, right? That's that's the the one metric yeah. that macroeconomics was based on. And so like people are confused, like, why didn't that person take that better job? Why didn't that person move even though it's cheaper right. 30 miles away? Like, you know, with, thinking only in the terms of yeah. pure dollars. It turns out it's not all about the Benjamins, this right. other stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So they, that's where this idea of behavioral economics came from. Is like, like what are the what are the things that humans value because we're humans and we're not like this idea of Homo economicus? I think is like the joke. <laughs> yeah. Like this this fictional human that's like makes perfectly rational economic decisions 100 percent of the time. Yeah, yeah that yeah, person yeah. does not exist right. because like there are things that we value that are not associated with money. Right. Like, and you don't have to torpedo that the original it's, it doesn't completely destroy economics because no. you can say I value money in terms of x number of value units. I value like temperature in my hometown this many value units. Right. So money just takes up such a huge chunk of a lot of people's overall value yeah. Yeah. That, it, that it tends to be mistaken for value. Right, exactly. Uh, it still does it's still real, it's just not the only thing. It's a, money is a stand-in for value. Yeah, yeah, money right. itself doesn't have value. It has value because you can use it to exchange things that do have value. Yeah. Right. And so that's I think I think that's kind of the core idea of behavioral economics, but it's developed a lot it's developed over the decades for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting because 
it has to do with um, like the core drives of a person, right? So it's kind of overlaps with like behavioral design. Yeah. And behavioral design is all about, cho- you know, the choices that people make under what conditions they make them and so on and so forth. And that is super interesting from a game design perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's ultimately what you're doing is you're trying to set up choices that are fun to make. Yeah. 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 And you are trying to present them and let people make those choices in ways that are fun. Right. So like we were talking um, with Andrew Ike last week about um, VR. You know, and like the choices that you that you make when you're setting up a character and how do you make those choices? Well, you press a big, cool button, yeah. right? Like you're making a choice and you're going to do it in a cool way, the big, cool button. Right. But and, and do you does that choice? How does that choice express itself in the gameplay onward and how much value do you assign to it? How much fun is it to actually do the choosing? Yeah. Versus how much enjoyment you get out of having made the choice. Yeah. And that, that's all. It's a, it's a hard equation to balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it is a hard equation to balance. And I think that, um, you know, just learning a little bit about behavioral economics as I have like casually over the last couple of years, um, I think it's a really useful like hat to put on when you're thinking about some of these decisions, right? Because when you're not, you're not, you're not creating Westworld, right? You're creating a game and it's going to be a limited number of choices. Even if it's a huge number of choices, it's still much, much, much smaller than the number of choices that somebody makes in a given day or yeah. like, you know, in real life, right? So um, the way that you present those choices can have a huge impact as to what people think about them. Mm-hmm. So you think about anchoring, like the idea of anchoring is kind of tied in with the idea of like what the, what language of games is. Like the fact mm-hmm. that we're used to going, starting on the left-hand side of the screen and running to the right. You know? Right, right. I expect um, to be able to jump over things that are smaller than waist height, even though I have some difficulty doing that in real life. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I think the idea of anchoring is more about like specifically about like what choices you value more than others. And that might be more in like a transactional sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you think about like your your favorite roguelike, you're making decisions about value all the time. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you need to determine whether or not this item is worth, you know pursuing versus another item right yeah okay. yeah That's like interesting way looking at it in hades i love the spear i love using the spear as my favorite weapon mm-hmm. you can just shoot, shoot and you can throw it yep. all these cool things with it but i don't get you know the bonus um purple crystals everywhere they're called <laughs> the purple crystals yeah um unless you know only one of the weapons gets that and usually it's not the spear because it rotates every time yeah yeah also, okay, it's really cool using the railgun. That's also awesome because <laughs> it has explosions in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> also, that hate is a great example because that game really incur- mechanically encourages to a ridiculous degree um, the player to try everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the problem I had with it is I got re- I picked my way of playing, mm-hmm. and I appreciated the ability to pick. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to play, and this is the type of play I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they, when I got good enough at that, I hit a huge wall where the game was like, all right, try other stuff now. And I'm like, well, why? <laughs> yeah. Right? I don't want to. But, but mechanically, the game is had it, – it could not have more incentives or motivation triggers to make me want to do that thing. But I was – I didn't want to do. And yeah. there was nothing the game could really do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you would just like – reached a point where the game wasn't the thing you wanted to play. Yeah, I didn't care if it got me more points. I didn't care if it got me closer to Hades. And I think as a designer, you kind of have to realize that you can't actually solve a player. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Right. Not every not every game is for every person. Right. So you either design for those people in a way to make it work for them also, yep. even if it's lesser, or or you or you at least I would have liked in Hades to have given me a a, a sooner heads up yeah. that I would eventually hate it. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> That's what frustrated me the most is that I liked it up until the point where like, oh, this isn't the game I thought it was. Yeah, sure. You know, even though there was like plenty of hints, it's really my fault, mm. you know. Um, it's a mature way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I mean, I don't have a ton of stuff to say on it. I think it's something I'd like to come back to at some point in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe with someone we can interview who can actually like give us a good tour of the topic. Yeah. Um. But I definitely think it's interesting, and I'm I'm curious to like hear from listeners who get on Twitter or Discord to see if you know they've looked to behavioral economics and the resources that are part of that field to solve game design challenges and and you know problems that they have in their design work. Yeah. Now, one thing I do want to say is like when I when I do research on it, just cursory research as far as like the applicability of behavioral economics in game design, a lot of what pops up is like how you do monetization. Right, yeah. dark patterns and I, yeah. So I was going to say like a lot of this stuff to me remind uh, makes me think of like how 
gamers decide what games they're going to purchase mm-hmm. um mm. or not purchase i guess if you're talking about monetization yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> um um i'm thinking of like how uh, a lot of players um and particularly in the, in the game dev sphere because we don't have a lot of time um i'll be like they'll be like i don't want to play this giant triple a game that has 300 hours of gameplay because it's got way too much hours of gameplay and I'm not, I don't have time for that. I just want a nice five hour game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've balanced it out so that they value how much time it takes for them to complete a game mm-hmm. versus how much time it takes, how much time they could potentially spend on a game. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and every time that kind of conversation ha- comes up, I'm always reminded of how my dad plays games. Hmm. He plays big games. Or games that he could play for a long period of time. And mm-hmm. he just plays that one game for months. He's still playing that Where the Water Tastes Like Wine game, I think, that mm. I was talking about. I may have talked about. Ages ago. Long yeah. time ago. He still plays it. <laughs> like, it's it's wild to me. Uh, and he likes playing, like, Assassin's Creed. Uh, even though, even for him, like, it has too much content. Um, he's been <laughs> complaining about it. He's like, there's just too many little icons on the map. Um uh, but like he likes playing those larger games and he likes playing those for a long period of time. I don't think that he likes playing shorter games um, because his value assessment on it is like, I don't want to spend uh, 20 bucks to play five hours of content. I would rather spend 60 bucks to play this game for months on end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I imagine there are a lot of people who think that way as well. Um, now, Well, yeah, that assessment of value is interesting because I think yeah. um, and I, I wanted to talk about this um a lot more in the top of the show, but I forgot, which is <laughs> a stray just yeah. came out. Oh, and oh, and right. I, I went through that and I, I think it's a great, like a perfect balance of, of, a, of like all of its components having just enough of those things. Nice. Mm-hmm. But none of them, I mean, none of the like mechanics, the exploration, the sort of like the, um, the, the uh, level design, the, the puzzles, the puzzles especially are really simple, like almost yeah. insultingly simple. Mm. But what's gr- what's good about it is that you don't feel that because everything else is at uh, at a at roughly equal level. Yeah. And so the whole experience feels very AAA, very it feels huge. Mm. And yet it only takes you a couple hours to complete. It's not that difficult. There's no not a lot of inventory to manage. It's fairly linear. Yeah. And yet you finish that game with a similar kind of feeling of like grand accomplishment. Mm. Like other than you look at your clock and you're like, oh, that didn't take that long. Like, yeah. I mean, that's hard to miss. But otherwise, it feels bigger than it is because each component is is calculated, and that's a lot of that anchoring, that sense mm-hmm. of like, um, I think players they look at like, is this game big enough for my twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty dollars? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that uh, players have no idea uh, how how to actually how they will actually feel about a game when they play it. Yeah. That way. Yeah. Um, you know, people will spend you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in a multiplayer game, and then they'll spend. 40 hours in a third person adventure game and we'll roughly rank that as like roughly oh yeah I play that game and that game without realizing that one dwarfs the other by a factor of 20 yeah and you know it it lives in your mind in a different space and so those are the kinds of like values and and and, um, variables and and how we value and and measure gameplay experiences Mm -hmm. that that because like you were mentioning, it's like um, a monetization and, yeah. and like those sort of those black hat techniques. That is where a lot of this happens. But I think developers should be thinking about that just in terms of it's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. So just like with any kind of game design thing, like consider what it's, you know, how your players will interact with it through that lens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not necessarily to engineer a result, but to analyze your own con- your own game mm-hmm. and then you then you lean into it or you lean away from it you're like oh i didn't realize the game was doing enough that much or that and yeah uh, some of that's just as simple as playtest feedback but i think uh i wouldn't lament the 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 inaccessibility inac- of that um of behavioral economics i think you can get a lot out of it not in essentially just designing your game but in assessing your own yeah. work yeah right and i think that that's probably the place to start from yeah with those yeah topics. i mean like again you know you 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 employ your programmer google foo and you search for behavioral economics and game design and you're gonna get a lot of um you know descriptions about how you can use it to monetize your game or how you can use it to quote unquote control players yeah but i really don't feel like that's doing the f- I don't feel like that's doing the field of behavioral economics justice. Sure. It's yeah. not about yeah. control. It's about right. understanding where you're yes. coming yeah. from. Yeah. And it should never be about control. And so y'all should rewrite your blog posts. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Right. Cause it's, I think that the, the, um, the, the, the dichotomy is between like, uh, Skinner box uh, manipulation oh, yep. and letting players be human beings free 
with their own. It's like, and the games aren't really one of the other of those things. Right. And so I think if you are someone who like recoils at the idea of manipulating your player to doing things, you're actually kind of missing out on what your game is manipulating the player because you are not paying attention to what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Right. It's that understanding. I mean, you said it, understanding. That's the key word. It's right. a willing, right. Like the, when you sit down and play a game, like you are basically saying, I am, I am going to be willingly manipulated. Like I am willing to be manipulated so that I can have fun. Yeah. Like you, there are certain, it's just, the, is that, is that communication clear? Like, are you, are you willingly opting into the things that you're going to be playing? Are your expectations met? Um, or do you feel like after three hours of playing your tower defense game and you've spent $20, do you feel like you were tricked? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like you don't want to, you don't want to feel like you were tricked. And so I think behavioral economics is a, place you can look towards to find language to kind of understand the choices that you're putting in front of players mm -hmm. and how people are making those choices. Right. right. And how to reward them for those choices or to encourage, like, is my system going to be based on points or stages or are you going to, or for, or enemies defeated? Like what are, what are the metrics you use to assess players' activities and achievements? Yeah. And then you, your gameplay may not be, you may not need your super complicated uh, um, a player skill tree because your game may not need to need that to feel like it has depth, mm -hmm. right? Because of the way that, that you're doing other components of it. Yeah. Um, I think games that rely solely on mecha me mechanical complexity to provide depth, my guess probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about it through that lens. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe uh, I'll have to do a survey. Yeah, I think oh, it's a good place to end this on. Is that I don't know, like yeah. it's yeah. it is just more questions than answers. The way sure. we're talking about this made me think of food. Okay, tell yeah. me more. Because like some foods you eat are light, even though they have a lot of calories in them. Some foods you eat are not. Like, yeah, yeah, they're really heavy, and you feel really full after, even though it's not that filling, or it doesn't have that many calories like in it. Or something. Marshmallows versus kale. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, or it's there's things that just cost more per ounce. Right. Yeah. And it's so, it, I mean, that back, to, back to straight economics. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, like all the different variables involved that are, you, you value like a, um, you know, a fine, uh, a piece of like European chocolate that costs you $30 mm -hmm. for some reason. Yeah. Rather than just a you know, crappy piece of Hershey's just because you're used to it or whatever. Yeah. When truthfully, they're not that different in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, they are different in some, right? Yeah. But like the, the value placed on it, a lot of it is imagined or has many more dimensions or variables. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, games, it's a good analogy mm -hmm. uh, for, for gameplay experience. But I, I don't want to take away from the, I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, I was going to end on like. And he's not going to let us uh, end this topic until you give him another point. Oh, yeah. definitely. Second, I wasn't, we're not done yet, so I'm oh. going to hold it. Okay. okay. Um, the last thing I just wanted to say is like, there are a couple of things I want to just shout out places you can look to and learn. Um, so there's a book called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, um, rich, written by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they're um, from the University of Chicago and from the Harvard Law School, respectively. So that's pretty cool. Um, again, some cool ideas about what you can do. And then Predictably Irrational, which is by Dan Airely. O'Reilly? O'Reilly. I'm not an economist, so I don't know these people by name. <laughs> but yeah, there are some places you can look for behavioral economics. And if you want kind of more of like a light touch, there's a podcast. We'll let you listen to another podcast. Um, <laughs> just this once. <laughs> just this once. Yeah, the Freakonomics Radio Network. They have a bunch of um, a bunch of podcasts, but their their core podcast, Freakonomics, talks a lot about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some good stuff there, and it's fun to listen to. Cool. They're pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Tell Where, us where's my point? Oh wait, wait. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you think. Come to Discord and talk more about it. Um, point to Stephen. Yes. <laughs> All right, that's our show. For show notes and links on today's topics, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter, at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and games with random encounters. It's probably cat-related. I'm just making that call now. <laughs> Always is. <laughs> we like hearing from you, so tweet back or email us, contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, you can stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. Until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice.
snake. Ooh, it's a snake. What? <laughs> Sorry, you guys were saying snake case, and once you oh, said snake case, that was in my head. Yeah. You've been holding on to that yes, this whole time? for like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that should just be like, uh, we should just have like a live feed inside your brain, just letting people know what's going on in there <laughs> during the show. Yeah. I, that would be kind of funny. <laughs> just go back and listen to the episode and like like the director's cut, but it's like the Ellen Ellen right. uh, internal monologue <laughs> cut. <laughs> it's like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, interesting. I know exactly what Stephen's talking about. No, I don't. Oh, they said something about snake. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a great way to segue into something smart. <laughs> Whoever's editing, please take this whole bit and just stick it at the yeah, end of the show. Yep. <laughs> it's the um, only place it belongs. <laughs> I think it's actually Stephen. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, maybe? I don't know. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.